we are thinking today about uh, when religion blinds people, which can happen. So let me just start by asking this question. What is it that keeps people from seeing who Jesus is? Seeing, believing, and staking their life on who he is. In John's gospel, there are at least four reasons for spiritual blindness. Let me roll through those just to get things started. Deception. One reason for spiritual blindness is deception. We are, as people, we as human beings, we're easily deceived by, by evil and Satan, the crafty one. We met him in John chapter 8. He's the father of lies. Satan uh, is the father of lies, and he deceives people. The second reason that people don't see and believe and trust in who Jesus is is, is probably one that we're all too familiar with, disobedience. Disobedience, just basically sinful habits or even open disobedience to God will inevitably keep us from seeing who Jesus is, trusting in who he is, knowing and loving God as we were made to. John 3 says, we love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. Deception, disobedience. Third reason is pride or unbelief. I think pride and unbelief, though they're different things, um, I think pride and unbelief are sisters. They, they're not exactly the same thing, but they feed one another like bickering children. Uh, pride and unbelief just work together. In John chapter 5, Jesus says to the Jews who do not believe in him, you refuse to come to me that you might have life. You refuse to come to me. That, that is a great description of the human condition. That in us, apart from God's grace, there is this sort of sustained refusal toward other people, toward God. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Deception, disobedience, pride, things that keep us from knowing God, seeing who God is. and what. Here's the fourth thing, religion. Now, this is deeply ironic that religion would, would blind people from knowing God, and it often does. That's happening here in chapter 10, and it should serve as a warning to those of us who've been part of institutional Christianity for any length of time, that religion is dangerous. Pure and undefiled religion, as James describes it in the New Testament, pure and undefiled religion, that's hard to come by. Religion is a dangerous thing. Remember the spiritual blindness that Vince talked about a couple weeks ago at the end of chapter 9? So just kind of drop back to the end of, uh, of chapter 9 and, and pick up in verse 39 and, and remember the spiritual blindness that the Pharisees... Um, that we saw in the Pharisees from just a couple weeks ago when, when Vince was teaching through chapter 9. In verse 39 of, of this chapter, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see might see, and those who see might be blind. Some of the Pharisees who were near him heard him talking and said, Are we also blind? In so many words, Jesus says, verse 41, yes, yes, and that's exactly right, because religion 
um, religion is something that can easily blind people from seeing the Son of God. Here in chapter 10, that very same blindness that Jesus is talking about at the end of 9 couldn't be any more obvious in this section of, of, of John chapter 10. The Feast of Dedication, verse 22. So we're back in chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place. The Feast of Dedication was not an authorized or instituted um, feast by God in the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, like you might remember other feasts that the people of God celebrated, Passover uh, or the Feast of Tabernacles or something like that. The Feast of Dedication was not authorized or instituted by God in the Hebrew Scriptures. It was a relatively recent thing. It, was, it came about because God's people were celebrating the, the recapturing back from, the, from Antiochus Epiphanes their city, the, the Jerusalem and its temple. It had been taken in 167 B.C. by Antiochus Epiphanes, and they get it back in 164 B.C., and this Feast of Dedication becomes a way to celebrate that. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to celebrate the reclaiming of the temple by God's people unless that very thing contributes to a blindness that cannot see Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the temple. So this is what's so deeply ironic about the moment in verse 22. At the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, it's wintertime, and Jesus is walking in the temple at, the, at Solomon's porch. Jesus, who the whole Bible has been pointing to, Jesus, the Son of God, whom the whole Bible has been pointing to, who's the fulfillment of the, new, uh, of the temple, who is the new temple, right? Who's the one who said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. He's walking among the temple. He's walking among God's people, and they cannot see him for who he is. Because their religion has blinded them. Not a bad thing to celebrate the reclaiming of the temple unless that celebration blinds you from seeing the very Son of God. So the Jews, verse 24, gathered around him, and this was not a friendly gathering. They, it, it, they encircled him, and, and they're not encircling him to say nice things to him be friendly. That's not at all what's happening. This tension that's been mounting between the Jews who are opposed to him. There were some Jews who believed, but there are many who do not believe, and they're encircled around him, and they're, they, 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 they're, they're not bringing friendliness. And the question that they asked Jesus is this, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. The question that they asked is based on the fact that both here and in the other Gospels, Jesus doesn't allow people to openly call him the Messiah before it is time. He does not promote himself publicly as the Messiah. A public, a public campaign for him as Messiah would have been disastrous. Um, to be sure, the expectations of those Jews in that day were something very different than Jesus intended as Messiah. So he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not willing to take the bait. He's not, they're baiting him here. Oh, go ahead, tell us publicly, tell us plainly in front of everybody that you think you're the Messiah. He's not operating that way. He's not going to operate that way. So he says in verse 25, I told you and you don't believe. I've already told you. 
but not in so many words. I mean, he didn't walk around and say, I'm running for Messiah, vote for me this fall. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that. He's saying, I've told you over and over again, if you've been watching my life, all the works that I've been doing, when I turned the water into wine, when I healed a man who'd been lame for 38 years, when I fed 5,000 people, all of these miracles that John is cataloging throughout his gospel say one thing over and over again, Jesus is for real. And Jesus says, I, I told you, and you don't believe, verse 25. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Every one of those works bear witness of who I am. But you don't believe. Now, this is really interesting. In verse 25, uh, one commentator, Ritterboss, calls attention to the tense of the verb in verse 25, and I, I love what he points out here. It's not just a normal present tense verb and you do not believe. It's probably better to render it something like this, and you remain in unbelief. It's, it's what uh, scholars call a, uh, a durative present. It has duration. It's, a, it's, it's an enduring present tense. You've been seeing these things, but you remain in unbelief. You've been hearing, but you remain in resistant, all the signs and the miracles and compassion and mercy that should have penetrated their hearts. And maybe you have found yourself at this place. Maybe, maybe there's been a time in your life, or maybe now would be a time in your life when you've seen and heard, and yet the resistance in your heart causes these things just to bounce off of you. That's what's happening here. All the signs and the miracles and compassion and mercy that should have penetrated the hearts of these Jews just bounced off their stubborn refusal to recognize Christ for who he was. We can be a stubborn people. We can be a stubborn people. You, did you know that about yourself? Tip of the day, no extra charge. You can be a stubborn person. And there can live inside you a refusal to see what God is doing around you. To see God for who he is. To see Christ and all the claims he wants to lay on your life. I told you, and you remain in unbelief. Verse 26, you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. You're, you don't believe because you're not part of who I am and what I'm doing. You're not in relationship with me. You don't, you're, the cause of... The, Jesus is saying to them, the cause of your rejection is not because I'm being vague about who I am. You know who I am. It's because of your unwilling hearts. The God who had so carefully shepherded Israel in the past was now calling his people to himself through Jesus the good shepherd. And to disregard the call was evidence that they are defecting from the flock of God. This is not God's fault. 
This is them defecting from God's flock. This is them not being willing to embrace the good shepherd who is Jesus, the Son of God. Verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Those who, I guess I missed verse 27. Back up to verse 27. This, yeah, this is really good. So if you're thinking about what Christianity is, verse 27 is a great answer. What is Christianity? Christianity is about people who hear the voice of God, know Christ, and follow him. Hear his voice, know him in relationship, and follow him faithfully. Think back to a moment when you wanted to meet somebody famous. Like maybe you had a chance to shake Billy Graham's hand or a famous athlete. Like you, you got a chance, you were in New York and you got a chance to see a famous baseball player or Boston, uh, you know, maybe you got a chance to meet Big Poppy or something, I don't know. Think back to a famous athlete or a movie star, somebody that, that you would love to have met. And you, you're there and you're meeting that famous person and they already know your name. And that person says to you, oh yeah, you're Mark, you're Bill oh yeah, I've been looking forward to meeting you. That would be like, what? He, he knows me? That's amazing, right? Because th- there is something to be said for wanting to know somebody famous and then them recognizing who you are. Are you with me? Are you in the illustration here? Are you with me? You got that person in mind? What would it be like, listen, what would it be like if the most important person in the whole world The God of the universe, in and through his son, said, I know you. I have been waiting to meet you. Like everything else in the world would just go unimportant, right? In that moment. Jesus is saying, I want you to understand. Here's what I want you to understand about Christianity. My sheep know my voice, they know me, I know them, I'm in relationship with them, and they follow me. I'm telling you, this is amazing, beautiful identity language, recognition language. They hear my voice, we talked about this last week, so I don't want to spend too much more time on it, but they hear my voice, they know me, and they follow me. Look, you're never going to be happier, you're never going to be more satisfied. Life is never going to have more meaning. All your relationships are never going to fall more into place than when you hear the voice of God's word, know him personally, and walk with him personally, and follow him for the rest of your life. He promises in verse 28, eternal life. He promises the very life of God when we read in John's gospel, eternal life, we don't, just meet, we, we don't just hear life forever. We hear abundant life, the life of God himself. All the littleness, one author said, all the littleness of earthly life would be gone, and they would begin to know the splendor and magnificence of the life of God. Have you ever at times just been sitting around, maybe at the beach or at the pool, or some, some, at some point at the lake, and you just had time to think, and you thought to yourself, my life is just kind of little, insignificant, small, 
meaningless. And you start reflecting on your life. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus promises us a big, huge, abundant life that makes all the littleness of life just dissipate. And you begin to know who you are and for what purpose you were made and that you were made for glory but not your own and abundant life just begins to become yours. And then he adds in verse 28, not only will I bring them eternal life, they will never perish. Death cannot touch them. Death would not be the end but the beginning. From this moment on, you will know the glory of an indestructible life. I give them, he says, eternal life. They will never perish, never perish. John 3.16, you know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but instead will have eternal life. Like You have to decide whether or not you really want to believe the gospel. And that Jesus promises something that will never perish. And then third, in verse 28, he says, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. The kind of life that we get as Christians is eternal, abundant, qualitatively different. It will never perish. We will never perish. And no one could ever snatch us from the Father's hand. Forever secure. This uh, snatch language is stealing language. It's robbery language. It's, it's the language of thieves. Uh, no one could ever snatch or steal. Uh, so I want you to be thinking about stealing and robbery and thieves for a minute. And that brings me to Oliver Twist, one of my favorite movies. Do you remember the 1997 Oliver Twist with Richard Dreyfuss in it? It's a great Oliver Twist. Uh, this is based on Charles Dickens' uh, great novel, right? And so the 1997 version with Richard Dreyfuss, I, I just highly commend it to you. Anyway, little Oliver Twist is an orphan, and he gets kicked out of the workhouse. And so he, gets, he lands in among some thieves in London and learns how to pick pockets. He's a pickpocket. He's, well, he's not really a pickpocket. All the guys who want him in the gang are pickpockets. And Oliver's uncomfortable with this from the very beginning. He doesn't, he's, he's kind of trying to go along with this because he needs a family, but he's not... He's, he's really not a thief at heart. He doesn't want to be. And, um, but the, the, the story is, is really built around this gang of boys who live with Richard Dreyfus, who's Fagin, and they, they steal stuff all day long, bring it back, and Fagin cashes it in, and he runs the money, and it's kind of his kingdom. But what the story kind of turns on is the ability of these boys to snatch things out of people's pockets. So they actually practice hanging a handkerchief out of the pocket and walking by and pick, you know, snatching stuff out of the... Their, one, of, one of their favorite rules, the first rule that, that Oliver learns with the rest of the gang in the, this new house of thieves is not every pocket's filled with gold, but check it anyway. <laughs> you know, they're training thieves. And so, so you constantly see them walking through the marketplace and trying to snatch things out of, you know, these, the wealthy's pockets, watches and purses and little money bags. Oliver, there's great character development in this, by the way. Oliver's never uncomfortable with it, but he gets this friendship with Dodger. Dodger's the lead thief. Great name for the lead thief. His name is Dodger, right? Nobody can catch him. 
the, the beauty of the story is that Oliver um, is far more impressed with people and love and relationships than thievery. So I don't, spoiler alert, I'll let you finish it. But the whole story turns on the ability of a thief to snatch. When you steal something, you don't walk in slowly, call attention to yourself, and gently kind of, you know, just make your way in to steal somebody's purse. you got to get in and out quickly and snatch it. That's the language that's here in the scriptures. It's the language of a thief. Jesus is saying that no one in the world could pick my pocket. Jesus is saying that once you're secure in him, once you're his and he's yours, that no one in the world, no thief, no robber, no wolf, nothing, nobody who's been mentioned in John chapter 10 could ever snatch you out of my hand. You can't snatch. Listen, you can't steal something from God. Are you kidding me? I don't think he's looking. Now's my chance. No, nobody snatches, nobody snatches people that Jesus has rescued and saved and secured. No one, Jesus says twice in this passage, Jesus says, no one can snatch them away from me, not out of my hand or not out of the Father's hand. No one can pick my pocket. No one can take from me what is mine. So look, when you're doubting, listen to me, when you're doubting your future, when you're doubting your security because of your health, because of your finances, because of your job, because of your broken relationships, when you're doubting everything and you're just about to give up, just remember, nobody can steal you. You have secure, You have more security in Christ than you could have anywhere else in the world. Stop resting in your 401k. Stop trusting in your future. Rest in the security of the Savior who says, no one in the world. Stop resting in the security of your health. Every week in this church, the pastors get a new phone call, a new text message, twice a week, three times a week, so-and-so's got this disease, so-and-so's got two days to live. That happened to us this week. There's a family right now, and they're, they're not, I don't know sure what to do because their daughter, uh, her daughter's dying. When your security is in your physical health, you're going to live a very anxious life. When your security is in your money, when your security is in your relationships, listen to what Jesus says this morning. I will keep you. I will hold you fast. Ask yourself this question. What are the things, I'm, what are things that I'm letting into my heart and soul? What, what, what is happening to me that I'm letting these other things come in and convince me that they could, they could make me insecure? You are forever secure in Christ. Once, you are tr once you've trusted him, once you've trusted him and you are his and he is yours, you are forever secure in Christ. Jesus ends this section by saying, I and the Father are one. He can say, not only you, nobody will snatch him from me, no one will snatch him from, from the Father's hand, I and the Father are one. We together will keep you. I and the Father are one. Well, that was all the Jews needed to hear. What are you talking about? So they picked up stones to stone him. This group that's encircled around him are there to stone him. 
And so they pick up stones, and, and Jesus says to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of those are you going to stone me? What I love about this verse, listen, what I love about this verse is Jesus is fearless in the face of death. I mean, who knows how many men there are surrounding him with stones? And there's one of him. And he says, for what reason are you going to kill me? Why are you going to kill me? Why do you want to stone me? He's fearless in the face of death. If anybody's wondering whether or not Jesus claimed to be divine, he claimed to be the full, fully divine, claimed to be the Son of God, claimed to be one with God, this passage should pretty quickly clear that up. Jesus, in fact, believed, taught, and even verbalized with his own mouth. It's, it's written in the, in the Scriptures. He thought of himself as the Son of God who was one with the Father. The full divinity of Christ is on display here. No question about it. In fact, one of the major themes in John's gospel over and over again is that Jesus Christ is so fully divine that he is, he's in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Fully divine. The Jews answered him in verse 33, we're not we don't want to stone you because you did some good works, but we're stoning you for blasphemy. You can't say that you're one with God. You can't make yourself equal with God. So Jesus brilliantly in verse 34, brilliant move in verse 34, he says, okay, let's see. Um, your supreme authority is the scriptures. Let's go to the scriptures. It's written in your own scriptures. And he quotes to them Psalm 82. I said you are gods. If he called them gods with a little g to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. Why are you so bent out of shape that I'm calling myself the son of God? He's calling on the scriptures to make his point. That in fact, the, the scriptures promised that sons of God would live in obedience to God. And that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, the perfect son of God, the true Israelite. But, you know, with religious people, even quoting their own scriptures back to them can't penetrate the heart that refuses to hear and believe. So, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped out of their hands. Verse 39. And he went away again across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing, and many came to him and Many believed in him there. So, again, throughout John's gospel, and we'll close with this, there's this great contrast between those who refuse to embrace him and those who believe. Those who refuse to embrace him and those who trust, see, and follow Christ. I want to call you this morning to be among those who, tr who, who see him, who trust him, who follow him, who yield their lives to him, The presence of Jesus Christ, one author wrote, is in this passage, in this long story that's unfolding, the presence of Jesus Christ is purging out the old Israel. 
And the people of God are being consecrated to him afresh as a new community of believers. I want to invite you to be a part of that new community of believers that God is making called the church. Those who trust in Jesus. If you've never yet trusted in Christ, or maybe you're just, you want to talk about it. You need to think about it. You're starting to hear it for what it is, and you want to know whether or not it's for real. Our pastoral pastoral team and anybody that you came with this morning uh, or friends with here would love to talk further with you about that. I want to pray for us and ask the Lord to help protect us from religious blindness and help us to believe in hope and faith. Would you pray with me? And then we'll sing together. Lord, would you please make a new people through your gospel, through your grace. Continue to make us new. Continue to bring new life. Lord, protect us from religion. Protect us from from institutionalized year after year after year of things that we, we think we understand and know. God, would you through Jesus make us a new, beautiful, redeemed, consecrated people for your own pleasure, for your glory. Lord, we entrust ourselves into your hands this morning. Remind us today that once we have trusted in you, that we are secure and that no one could steal us away from you. And let that security and that confidence we have in you change the way we live this week. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.